Hi, listeners. Rachel here with an exciting announcement. We are holding a summer book club bingo game, and there is a card that you can download, a bunch of prompts for different types of books that you can choose to read to play the game along with us. All the instructions and information on how to sign up are at rachelthompson.co slash book club, where you can get your card. And you'll also be able to enter your card to win prizes throughout the summer months. So that's from May to September. We'll be running this book club bingo. I hope you will sign up and uh, read some cool books and be inspired to do some more writerly reading this summer. So all the information is at rachelthompson.co slash book club. Welcome, Luminous Writers, to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. I am your host, author and literary magazine editor, Rachel Thompson. This podcast explores how to write and share your brilliant writing with the world. In each episode, we delve into specifics on how to polish and prepare your writing for publication and the journey from emerging writer to published author. Hello there, writers. This is the continuation of our agency theme on the podcast after an impromptu break in episodes last week. I had to take some of my own agency and say, I can't do it this week. This was not without having some hard feelings about being inconsistent and letting you, dear listeners, down. I don't know if you can relate to that kind of perfectionism and guilt, I guess, though I suspect you do based on the responses I got to my latest newsletter, which was titled Nope, in which I shared five things we can say no to as writers and also shared how imperfect I am recovering from my perfectionism. What a surprise. A lot of writers like that nope permission slip to do things in their own time and way, and I heard from many who were relieved. You can subscribe to my newsletter called Writerly Love Letters at rachelthompson.co slash letters. So I gave myself permission to be late here, and I'm happy you still found your way to the episode. By the way, I'm winding up for the season with these episodes now too, and there will be one more episode on agency with another former literary agent coming up next week. And then our book club conversation where we discuss craft and conscience by Kavita Das. So you can grab a copy of that book and read along with us. You can find a link to pick it up in the show notes. And then you can tune into this channel in June for another craft reading conversation. This is a great collection of essays, and I'm excited to talk more about it. So that's Craft and Conscience by Kavita Das. This episode interview is with another Luminous Writerly Love community member, Wendy Atwell, who is earlier in the process than our previous member guests who secured agents. That was Lacey Young and Jessica Waite. And this is more common of people in our community, in fact, that they are working and maybe in the midst of writing their memoir or they're starting to put things together to work into a memoir. And Wendy is writing and revising her memoir. And I think it's the perfect time to check in with her because she has made some great choices for her work that took a lot of intention and self-trust, i.e. agency. She's also someone who takes a lot of information about writing in from great teachers and books. And then again, with lots of agency, discerns what will serve her story, including finding an unconventional structure for her work. So listen to hear more on that unconventional structure and how she came to it. Her memoir is titled Awara's Guide to Ranch Life, Lessons My Father Didn't Teach Me. Here's my conversation with Wendy Atwell. 
So I want to welcome you to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast, Wendy Atwell, and just thank you so much for sharing your writing journey with us. Rachel, thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be here. I'm excited that you're here too, because you've been such a wonderful community member, and it's just such a joy for me to have seen firsthand how your memoir evolved since you joined. I don't even think I could probably describe what it was like previously, but I just have seen it change into what it is now. And I'm really excited about the current project and you've just done such brilliant work. So I know your project very well, but can you tell our listeners about your memoir and its themes and central questions? Yeah, absolutely. My great-great-grandfather was one of Texas's first Jewish cattle ranchers, and his wife, Sarah, raised 11 children. When my father died, before that, he also sold the ranch. I was really troubled by that, and I wanted to go back and try to understand what happened because we were raised to never sell the land. That was sort of the rule that we were always supposed to follow. So... After he sold the land, and then after he had a really sort of a traumatic death, I wanted to take a look. And this book is what I think of as a scavenger hunt across the centuries. And I'm trying to learn about the magic of the land because it is a magical place. Deep South Texas is seemingly a barren geography, but in truth, there's so much history and a lot of secrets to the flowers and the fauna. And also, I think America's in a really polarized place right now. And my book is sort of a rare and playful take on the dichotomies such as Christian, Jewish, blonde, brunette, sober, drunk, and city country. I love everything you said about it being a scavenger hunt, too. You describe it in such a way that is super appealing And also maybe hints a bit to the structure as well, too. The fact that it's going those dichotomies and piecing different parts together. I invited you here specifically, as you know, to talk about the structure of your manuscript because it's not a traditional story arc. And I think for me, too, that was like a beautiful aha moment that I got to experience with you when you realized, oh, this isn't a traditional story arc. And so I want you to if you will, please tell everyone about what happened when you realized it wasn't going to follow the arc and what it meant for this history that you're writing about your ancestors and the scavenger hunt you're taking. Well, it's just been such an interesting process because all along I wanted to tell a feminist history of the land. And originally I wanted to just talk about the land. And then I realized I needed to add people into it because it's too boring if you don't have a narrative. So I had all this information. I'm an art historian by trade. And so I work from image and I had so many different details of the land, like learning about the plants and learning about the history of the indigenous people that lived there before us. I was really interested in thinking about land in a timeless sense. So then as I was developing those thoughts, learning more about craft and thinking of it in terms of a memoir, I was researching different memoirs along the way and reading and reading and reading and not really realizing what I would find and how it would then inspire me to come up with my own theme. But I read Michael Andache's book, Running in the Family, which is a generational memoir, and he travels back to where he's from and learns about his grandparents and his parents. And I really enjoyed seeing how it was a memoir, but it was told 
through time in the history of his family. And then the other book that I loved is California Calling by Natalie Singer, which is an interrogatory form. It seems like it's almost like a law-based interrogation and she is responding to the questions and it really is based on an incident that happened in court with her when she was young. And then the third book was Sheila O'Connor's Evidence of Fee, and she combines speculative elements of her subjects with her, like, lyric flash with her research. So I was really inspired by the idea of if you don't know the answers to some things, that you are allowed to be speculative. As long as you announce that to the reader, you use your imagination to sort of fill in the blanks. And a lot of what I'm doing is writing from photography. I have this incredible old scrapbook from the Wild family with great old pictures and not a lot of answers or captions to go with the pictures. So it's me imagining what it was like to give birth to 11 children and survive that in the late 1800s in Corpus Christi in between hurricanes and what it was like for my great, great uncle Jonas to have to open 52 gates to travel to South Texas, the ranch from Corpus and get there and start this cattle empire that they did. I wanted to maybe pull back into the interrogative form again, because I think that's to me a really exciting voice that emerged in your writing process. And also as a kind of zoom out, I just love that we're talking about the book as it's evolving and being able to kind of really unpack the process of really just writing a book versus, oh, this is a done and dusted because you are in the final stretch, I would say, in terms of completing it and starting to send it out, but you're still working on it. I just love the interrogative pieces. The where of voice is what you named it. And can you talk a bit about how that voice came about and where it came from? You know, it's so funny. It just happened. The where voice just sort of appeared. I think what the beautiful thing about reading is that it's sort of like you internalize all these ideas and information. And I don't even think that the Guerra voice happened after Natalie Singer. I feel like it might've even happened before, but the Guerra voice is really playful, just sort of able to hold all the dichotomies that I mentioned. The Guerra voice is really named after when my mom first went to the ranch, my father took her there and he was still courting her. (laughs) The cowboys there, which we call vaqueros, spoke Spanish and they looked at my mom and just cracked up because she's such a petite woman and she has this sort of very beautiful put together look all the time. And her name is Penny. And so they called her Centavo Huera. That's just always been in the back of my mind, the idea of huera. You know, sometimes you hear huera in the sense of blonde, maybe like catcalling on the street, but this is not that. This is more like a term of endearment that cowboys use for my mom. It has always been just part of our family hearing that word. So the huera voice came out and the huera voice just holds like what it's like to approach this land from the city, but you're there and you do learn how to ride the horses and you can gallop across the land. And so what happened was, I think that in the process of questioning Rera is that Rera is sort of there to magically answer questions that are hard to answer. I'll just maybe note too that it challenges the narrator who I would think of as you, although of course it's both you. And I just love 
actually coming off of in our writerly love community, having read that book about voice first and about how there are all these different voices. I mean, you were doing that already really deliberately. So, and I think that's really neat. The voice that's narrating and then the voice that's questioning the narrator is just such a cool conceit. Bravo on that. (laughs) Thank you for that. I think it's been really fun to work with too. Since I did lose my dad, I miss him. And I feel like the back and forth that I have is sort of a rapport that I also had with him. He had a really funny sense of humor and my sister inherited that sense of humor. And so I still feel like it's with me in some sense, but the where to back and forth, like the questioning, the me questioning myself as the Wera is really sort of, I'm always picturing my dad in the background, sort of teasing me, like, what are you doing writing this book? And just calling me out when I'm getting too serious or too melancholy, or it's just sort of a irreverent, funny back and forth that reminds me of the conversations I used to have with my dad. So you mentioned several books already. I feel like every time we talk to you, you're like, oh, I've just learned this from this book, or I've taken this course from this teacher. And I think you strike me as someone in our conversations who can take in a lot of different information from brilliant sources, but also has a real knowing about your own writing. Can you tell us what you gleaned about structure along the way from your learnings? Right now, I am taking a class with Alexander Chi, and it's what he learned from editing the best essays in America from 2022. And that's been a really fun process because what he does is he kind of prompts us as readers to consider our reading habits and what we've been reading and really what we're drawn to. I enjoyed that so much. So when I was reading this anthology, it was easy for me to pick out the essays that I loved. And I think learning from him about that is just sort of realizing to be true to what you're really drawn to and to really look technically at the craft of that and why it is that you're drawn to it. One of the examples would be Sabrina O'Remark, who I also have done workshops with. And I'm so drawn to how she's able to take these archetypal elements of the fairy tale and then weave them into daily life in a way that seems magical. As I've had the workshop with Sabrina, I've encountered other writers who I've really loved and learned about them through other writers in the workshop. And one of the writers told me about Helene Sixou's Osnabrück Station, which is such an incredible book. It's about weaving in what might have happened if the Holocaust victims were able to return back to the city that they had to leave or they were extradited from. There's just so much information out there. Annie Erno is another writer who I was inspired by because of how she writes from daily life. And Kate Zambrano's Drifts is such a good book because she works with art and then she weaves it into her thoughts about the art that she's looking at into her daily life. So I think the balance is really just letting all of this simmer in my brain and then seeing how it settles into something that makes sense in my own prose and poetry. It's a time process. It really does remind me of planting. It's like planting seeds and then just seeing what comes up and what I want to harvest from that. I'm really enjoying this stage because 
I printed out my manuscript for the third time. And this time around, it's really easy for me to see what it is that's not working and how I want to either just prune it or just reframe it in a way that is making more sense to me for the overall narrative. And I'm going back to Meander Spiral Explode and looking at the fractal chapter because I'm so interested in the section that, let's see, it says self-replication, but with difference from bare incidents to melodrama, to tiny tragedy, to psychological story of inner struggle. That really resonates with me because as you know, in my book, I have different themes that are replicated throughout like the cornucopia theme. And so as I'm writing, it becomes a deepening or sort of a deeper awareness. I started out with my character being the girl with the faraway eyes, which is a Rolling Stones song. And she is looking, but she doesn't realize what she's not seeing. And then throughout the book, she becomes more and more able to see. And she's seeing back into the past. And she's seeing elements of her parents' relationship and her father's pain that she wasn't able to understand when she was younger because that comes with age and wisdom. I just love that you brought up Meander Spiral and Explode. I'm trying to remember and failing at the author of that book. Oh, it's Jane Allison. Thank you. Yeah, I was going to say Allison something. So Jane Allison wrote that. And I feel like that was, well, also a book that we read in our book club very early on. And it became kind of the permission slip, I think, that many of us felt like we didn't realize we needed maybe to go, okay, no, I'm not writing a traditional story arc. There isn't going to be a climax per se. Can you talk a bit about the structure of Fractal in terms of how it felt like a good fit for your work? Absolutely. So yesterday I was looking back at the different fairy tales. What happened was I realized that my book is a quest. My book is a quest in the sense that I am looking for the lessons my father didn't teach me. But my quest is not a hero's journey quest because I am writing a distinctly more feminist version. So I came across the idea of the never ending fairy tale, which is something that says things can't be resolved. Like there's always more to be discovered. I really like the fractal element because it's a replicating and a deepening in that sense. I think that's sort of the deep side that I have when I think, okay, no, we don't have to follow this traditional form because life isn't like that. And it's too neat and tidy to tie things up and make them all fit into the same shape. You know, you already mentioned the cornucopia repeating images that kind of appear in different places in different ways and become smaller or different sized anyway, fractals, I guess, but mirrors maybe of the other pieces in the entire narrative and yeah, I think there's something both really gratifying about reading work like that too, because you get to see these patterns and finding patterns is always very exciting in writing. And I feel like it's what readers are always looking for are the patterns and writers are looking for the patterns to write about. But then also it feels gratifying because it just feels more honest too, to the fact that, okay, I can't answer all these questions about this family history, or it's more complicated. I mean, you mentioned the indigenous peoples who were there too, and the struggles that your ancestors would have had as well too. It's sort of like, there's all these different people and aspects and parts of the mosaic of this story that are not really resolvable necessarily, but they're definitely 
interesting to quest on. So I love that you're calling it a quest as well, too. And that feels really true, too, because a quest is like intentional, even though, I mean, you're talking about it not being a hero in the traditional kind of male, I guess, arc again, too, of the hero's journey. It's like, no, this is like a more of a feminist take, but a quest is something that, you know, we set out on deliberately. And so I just love that there feels like there's agency, I guess, in that as well, too. And that's part of what we're here to talk about today, too. When we were young and we used to go on Weltas, which are just like drives across the land. My parents had their different little library of eight, eight track cassettes that they would play. It would be Pink Floyd or Willie Nelson or Fleetwood Mac. And one of the Willie Nelson songs was It's Not Supposed to Be That Way, which is a love song. But that is sort of a theme that I've taken in looking at how I was raised there on the weekends. It's not supposed to be that way. I always felt like there was something missing from the story, whether it was like what was going on in the dynamics between my parents or how it was that my father became a dentist instead of a rancher. And then going forward, using that song lyric as a theme for how things ended up. Like it wasn't supposed to be that my parents would get divorced or that my dad would end up selling the ranch. And I used sort of the format of an eight track cassette, which is that endless loop (laughs) that goes on and on. And, you know, I just remember going down the ranch roads at the really slow speeds, hearing eight track loop back and forth with all the great Willie Nelson songs and just considering like what it is So my job as the scavenger hunt is to fill in the missing pieces, the lessons that my father either didn't teach me because he didn't know or didn't understand himself because he wasn't taught. It's a great form. I never even thought of the eight track for the non-definitive climax, rising action. Here's the end, the denouement. It's like, no, no, this just keeps repeating and rotating around. So that's brilliant. As I've mentioned, this episode is about agency and as you know, Wendy as well. And you've already talked a bit about how you balance learning and outside feedback with your own inner knowing. Can you say more about that too? It's like how you followed, I guess, your own lights and the scent of your story throughout this as you're still someone who's, you know, pulling in all these great resources. I mean, taking a course with Alexander Chi is just amazing, I think, and being able to, you know, learn from these great writers as well. I think that agency is so easy when you hit upon what it is that you love and what you're passionate about. Agency is just about following that trail. Also in my book, there's this idea of the breccia, which is this little pathway off into the pasture that the animals make, whether it's cattle or even ants. That is a Tejano word for the paths that you see sort of wandering in through the grass. And I would like to think that agency would be having the guts to actually follow that. You know, when we were young, we couldn't because there were so many rattlesnakes and we'd have to put on our snake guards. And I write about now, you know, finally reaching the age where I have my snake proof boots and we could go wherever we want. We just have to watch our step. So agency is really that. It's about being able to follow the path that you're interested in, but also watching your step along the way. Oh, that's such a great metaphor. (laughs) Watch out for those rattlesnakes. (laughs) Where are your snake guards? (laughs) Since we're in this kind of advice voice right now, speaking of all the voices as well, too, what would you say to writers struggling to know the form of their own work right now? What were things that helped you in sort of getting to know your form? 
What's helped me the most is one of the books that we read together, Body Work by Melissa Phoebos. And in it, she quotes Rilke and um, she says, the work of the eyes is done. Go now and do the heart work on the images and prisons within you. So I thought that was just such a really helpful quote. Melissa Phoebos definitely is a huge inspiration for me because I would say that it's all about trusting the images that come to you, that you're writing the story that you're meant to write because you have to trust that your memories and the thoughts are the things that are pulling you or the things that you're meant to investigate and look into. Trust is so essential. That's a word that seems to keep coming up with agency too, is like self-trust. Tell us more about what agency means to you, Wendy. Agency is just trusting what feels right. And then also, Rachel, one of the things that you really helped me with in the process of being my book coach is agency means choosing to surround yourself with what happened with me was I chose to surround myself with what was going to feed my craft and really making those choices on a daily basis, minute by minute, hour by hour, and having goals set for myself and also choosing positive, like really trusting that it's a process and that it just takes time. To ask you to bring some reading for us today so we get a sense of one of the fractals in your piece and how they might play with other pieces and become part of this big picture that is in itself a fractal of itself or the big version of the fractal, whatever that might be. So Wendy, please read from Awara's Guide to Ranch Life, Lessons My Father Didn't Teach Me. And listeners, please enjoy this reading. I'm going to read from a section early on in my book, and I mention La Palangana, which is the name of my family ranch. Lesson, make your own map. My father kept the bundle of old Palangana papers just like he had received them from his father, wrapped in a scrap of brown suede that had darkened over time. I untied the leather strap that held it together, thinking of the roughened, tan hands that had done so before, belonging to my grandfather, father, great-great-uncle, and great-great-grandfather. Inside, the 19th century Spanish land grants and maps are folded and stacked, dry, crisp, and delicate, like they might break or tear if I try to unfold them. Perhaps this very package was handed over to my great-great-grandfather Charles on the day he purchased the land in 1899. And now this important old bundle of ranch business has fallen into my hands. I can't imagine this is what Charles wished. He had, after all, partitioned the ranch into equal portions between his sons, while his daughters, as their descendants like to point out to me, got money, stock, and jewelry. Sounds good, but was an unfair trade. Charles's first son, Jonas, inherited the cattle business, but he had had three daughters, so the job got passed down to my grandfather instead. Now this ruffle bundle lies in the hands of a woman. What alchemy, what trickery, what does an inheritance mean when it jumps the track? Would I be holding this bundle if I had brothers? Would my father have sold the ranch if he had had sons? I unfold the maps, looking at the scrolls of cursive rolling across the land, letters like graceful hills and valleys on what is, in truth, dry, flat, sandy land. 
The word palimpsest originates from the early days of writing when parchment was recycled and old writing was erased and replaced with new writing. Palimpsests are the traces of past script and markings left behind. On today's maps, the echoes of Spanish and Tejano names remain. When I was old enough to realize the way patriarchal naming worked, I mourned for the loss of my family's name. I didn't know yet how many other wilds there were, or even that another Wendy Wilde existed, a distant cousin. Because my father only had daughters, Wilde would disappear with us, and it almost felt like it was our fault because we had been born girls. It had not yet occurred to me that I might choose to keep my last name or give it to one of my daughters, which I have since done. And why did I not feel the same stab of loss for my mother's maiden name? As women, we marry and take our husband's names, and our given names become maiden names, palimpsest. I felt sad for a while, like it was an animal going extinct. My sister and me, the last of the wiles, the end of an era. My husband and I have three daughters. I keep the papers in an archival box, stored for them to open one day to make their own discoveries, so they will be able to track the wild name in the Palangana, the faded script, palimpsest, written into their past. I have one more question and then our rapid fire, not so rapid fire, maybe slow rapid fire questions. (laughs) So the final question is, when have you felt the most agency in your life or your writing life? When have I felt the most agency in my writing life is when I find a writer that I'm super inspired by. And when I wake up and I have a really great dream and I'm able to just go straight into a writing day and maybe just be in that liminal space that happens between sleeping and waking and being able to just stay with that flow. Yes. I love that space myself. (laughs) And when have you found, I guess, the least agency when it comes to your life and writing life? The least agency is when I submit a piece for critique and it's not something I should have done yet when it's too raw and I know better than to take advice that's not necessarily getting my work. There's nothing better than having great critiques. I'm open to that. And I've always loved getting my work edited, but I've also learned that it's important to hold things back until they're really ready to share. That's so apt. Thank you for sharing that. Because I think even those of us who know that need to hear it every once in a while as well, too. Here are my rapid fire, slow fire questions. The first is being a writer is? Being the observer and investigator in the room. Rejection for a writer means? Not being seen or understood. Writing community is? When you find the right people, it is the real magic. I feel so lucky to find writers who share their writing and what they're reading with me and that we are able to talk about the craft together. It raises the bar and just feels so inspiring. Well, thank you for being part of my writing community in all senses, not just because you're part of the formal writing community, but because I feel community and kinship with you. And I just really appreciate everything that you bring to our community and the magic that you are definitely a part of. So thank you so much, Wendy. Thank you so much, Rachel. It was so fun to talk to you today. So that was Wendy Atwell. I hope you enjoyed her reading as much as I did and the idea that you can make your own map, both in the context of her memoir and also as writers. I hope you take from our chat another permission slip if you need it. I'm giving those out in truckloads these days. If you need encouragement to find the structure that works for your writing and find the path that makes the most sense for you, 
please take the slip and be off on your writing journey. It's all about what you want to create and how you want to create your luminous work and how you want to feel as you write. I hope great and not beleaguered by expectations. There are enough of those in our lives already. This episode is brought to you by self-care and rest. I am not currently offering any courses right now for registration. The Lit Mag Love course is on its way with some amazing writers. The whole book course is going to start next month and I've already accepted all the applicants that are going to take into that course and I'm excited to work on books with these writers. There will be a reading in our community on May 28th, Sunday. So if you're listening to this episode and you want to come and hear some emerging writers reading from their work in process, you can do that. The best way to find out about it is to sign up for my letters at rachelthompson.co slash letters. The Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is brought to you by me, Rachel Thompson, and sound editing is done by Adam Linder of Bespoken Podcasting. All of our episodes have transcripts, and in the past months of episodes, these have been transcribed by Dia Jaffrey. Thanks, Dia. You can learn more about the work I do to help writers write, publish, and shine at rachelthompson.co. When you're there, sign up for my writerly love letters sent every week and filled with support for your writing practice. If this episode encouraged you to find fractals in your writing or look at other forms, exciting opportunities to try something different with your writing in terms of its shape, please email me at hello at rachelthompson.co. I love to hear all about what you're gleaning from the podcast. And I would love it too if you tell other luminous writers about this episode. You can do this by sending them to the podcast at rachelthompson.co slash podcast or telling them to search for Write, Publish, and Shine wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you for listening. I encourage you to make your own map for your writing project and writing life. Wendy Atwell spoke to me from San Antonio, Texas on Wamanos, Quahuiltican, Ende Konitsai, Gokiya, which is the Lipan Ipache and Tonkawa land. And I am a guest in the South Sinai, Egypt, on lands historically and presently occupied by the El Muzina Bedouin. Join our game of book club bingo this summer. Learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash book club.